Welcome to this weekly audio digest session of the Herald Scotland. From Friday the 14th to Thursday the 20th of December 2018. Read by volunteers at Q&Review Prince Speaking to the Blind at our studios in the Bishopric Media Centre. Before we start, I'd like to reiterate last week's announcement that we will be closing from Friday the 21st to January the 7th. We apologise for any inconvenience this may cause, and from all of us here at Q&Review, Review, we would like to wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. But for now, the headlines in Part 1. Royal Megan could help end inglorious Scottish tradition. State pension age changes cause confusion for older workers. EU leaders tell Theresa May Brexit withdrawal agreement is not open for renegotiation. Neil Mackay, dear dad, here's to getting to know you after all those lost years. By Neil Mackay, writer at large. Councils say Derek Mackay's budget is the final nail in local services. Don't waste your energy feeling sorry for Theresa May. Paul Gray, NHS Tyside boss, 91k payoff, good value for money, and make a charity cash row. The Herald, Monday, December 17th, the Mark Smith column. Royal Megan could help end inglorious Scottish tradition. This isn't the kind of column in which I hand out relationship advice, but imagine for a minute that it was. Imagine too that a man called Harry, former soldier, former party boy, has just written in to ask for advice about his wife, Megan. Harry is worried by the fact Megan doesn't want to spend Boxing Day with his family because she doesn't like what they get up to. Normally, I'd say to someone like Harry that changing who you are for a partner is a bad idea, but on this occasion, I'm not so sure. If I were you, Harry, I'd listen to your wife, It looks like Megan knows what she's talking about. The specific issue causing trouble for Harry is hunting, namely pheasant shooting, which the royal family have traditionally done every Boxing Day at Sandringham. Prince Harry has taken part in the event for more than 20 years, but according to reports at the weekend, he will not attend this year. Harry also, you may remember, failed to appear at the summer grouse shoot at Balmoral this year, reportedly because he didn't want to upset Megan, who opposes blood sports. This is quite a moment. Suddenly, at the heart of the royal family, we have someone who objects to one of the things they love doing most, killing animals. The obvious question is whether Megan's opposition will change anything, And we should probably admit that, in the short term, it won't. The royals aren't about to put down their guns because of the new American member of the family. However, longer term, Meghan's personal stand is part of a wider trend that's starting to put pressure on shooting, particularly driven grouse shooting. In the last few days, we've had a think tank report that challenges some of the economic claims made for grouse moors. A Scottish Government inquiry 
is also going on into the environmental impact of grouse moor practices and whether they can be made sustainable. There's a long way to go, but maybe, at last, the first hawks are starting to circle above the shooters. The shooters themselves normally defend what they do by claiming that shooting provides jobs and is a good economic use of the land. But the report from the Common Wheel Think Tank has exposed that as untrue. The report compares grouse shooting to forestry, renewable energy, horticulture and tourism and concludes that grouse shooting is the least economically effective. It also tackles the job claims. It takes 330 hectares to provide one job on a grouse moor, it says, compared to just 42 for forestry and 3 for horticulture. When you consider grouse moors cover 18% of Scotland, that's a lot of land not being used to its full potential. However, the economic arguments, powerful as they are, are only part of the story. As everyone knows, the ideal grouse moor from the point of view of landowners and game picker is one that is pretty much devoid of any predator, which leads to predator control on a mass scale, legal and illegal. The them and us atmosphere in shooting is also unpleasant. For months now, I have been speaking to people within shooting who are concerned about the cruel and brutal way that some gun dogs are trained, but they are too afraid to go public because they know they will be shunned and their careers will effectively be over. There is also a disturbing imbalance at the heart of shooting, which I saw for myself at the Scottish Game Fair in Schoon. Everyone at the event kept saying how shooting was for everyone, and I remember one gun dog trainer telling me how he had trained a dog for a Russian oligarch and a postie from Dundee. However, my impression, I have to say, was that the shooters were made up of two distinct groups, the aristocrats, the wannabe aristocrats, and the well-off at one end, and at the other end, the people who work for them, men and it's mostly men, who work as keepers or beaters for not very much money. This class-ridden problem with shooting is just another reason to dislike it, and I rather relish the idea that it could be a duchess who draws attention to it. I am also hopeful that Meghan Markle's opposition to shooting may help to change the narrative in Scotland and in particular help the Scottish Government to stop waffling and actually do something about grouse moors. The Government's inquiry into the moors, chaired by Professor Alan Werity, is a good start, but it's based on a flawed premise that the glorious 12th can actually be glorious and that grouse shooting can be made acceptable. Professor Werity is explicitly looking for ways in which grouse moors can continue to be a part of the rural economy, instead of questioning the idea of the grouse moor itself, and whether something that harms the countryside should be part of the countryside. 
I am also not entirely convinced that the Scottish Government really gets the argument on animal welfare. A few weeks ago, I accused the Government of hypocrisy for condemning Larissa Switwick, the American photographed with a goat she killed on Islay, while also supporting the culling of goats, seals, hares and other animals, and failing to act on grouse moors. And the response I got from Rosanna Cunningham, the Minister in Charge of Animal Welfare, was disappointing. Ms Cunningham cited the Werity Group and said it would be examining how grouse moors could be made sustainable and compliant with the law, but she obviously isn't willing to look at the issue at a deeper level and ask whether we should question the very existence of grouse moors. Which leaves us in a curious situation, in which the Duchess of Sussex appears to be making a better stand on grouse shooting than the minister in charge of the issue in Scotland. I don't want to exaggerate what Meghan Markle has done, of course, but the royal family can, and often does, reflect wider social changes, and the hope must be that it has started in a very small way to do the same on hunting. My advice to Harry would be to listen to what his wife is saying. She talks a lot of sense. My advice to the Scottish Government is to listen to the growing unease about hunting and do something about it. This is an article from the Herald. 17th of December 2018. State pension age changes cause confusion for older workers. According to Age UK, a quarter of those aged between 15 and 64 do not know when they'll be plum eligible. Despite several years of high-profile media coverage of how changes to a state pension age, SPA, will affect women in particular, the charity found that 3 million workers approaching retirement could not say when their payments would begin. Age UK director Caroline Abrams said clearly there's still much confusion about the age at which people can expect to receive their state pension, and our worry is that many who have few resources to fall back on are in for a nasty shock. Half of those did not know where SPA said it was an unpleasant surprise when it was revealed as part of a charity's research because it was a higher than they anticipated. Among those who claimed to know their SPA, one in ten found they would have to wait longer than they expected, while almost a third of those surveyed admitted they had either never checked or could not recall when they had checked their SPA. The age at which women clarify has risen from 60 in 2010 to match men's qualifications age of 65 this year. From 6th December it will creep up for both men and women until it reaches 66 in October 2020 and 67 in March 2028. The reason for the changes increasing longevity, when the state pension was introduced in 1948, a 65-year-old could typically expect to live another 13.5 years by last year. This has gone up to 22.8 years. According to the Office for National Statistics, this means that even when the SPA adjustments between 2017 and 2042, the number of people receiving state pension will grow from 12.4 million to 16.9 million. Almost 6 out of 10 50-64 year olds served over age the UK felt very negatively about the SPA rises, with well over a third saying they are disappointed. 
a third angry and one in seven worried. And the outlook is even gloomier for young workers. The SPA is expected to increase to 68 between 2037 and 2039. All voters could be brought forward. Miss Abrams said more support should be given to those who are badly affected by the increase of SPA, like men and women who are earning low wages, who are completely and mainly reliant on strict pension to get by in retirement. One in eight men and one in five women aged 55 to 65 have no private or workplace provision, and even them have nothing to supplement their state payments when they stop work. The maximum weekly payout is currently £164.35 a week. This falls short of the 26,000 consumers organisation which calculates is required to provide a comfortable lifestyle in an old age. And many people who would not qualify for this amount, only those who have made 35 full years of national insurance contributions will receive a full state pension. To avoid living in poverty after giving up work, experts typically recommend putting away at least 12% of income. For someone earning £30,000, this could mean saving £300 a month. If you're not already contributed to a workplace pension scheme, to benefit from your employer's additional contributions, begin as soon as possible. If you're not eligible, consult an independent advisor about starting a private plan. Check the performance of your savings regularly and increase what you put away as necessary. To find out when you qualify for a state pension and how much you might get, visit gov.uk slash check state pension. If you have gaps in your national insurance record, you make additional voluntary contributions to improve your entitlement. For more on this, see gov.co.uk forward slash check national insurance record. Anyone concerned about their retirement income or state pension age can call Age UK Free. Anyone concerned about their retirement income or state pension age can call Age UK Free on 0800 169 6565. Visit ageuk.org.uk or contact a local branch. If you are blind or partially sighted or know somebody who is, they may be eligible to receive a BWBF Sonata Plus internet radio, where our daily podcasts are available. To qualify for a free permanent loan from BWBF, you need to be resident in the UK, registered blind or partially sighted, over the age of 8, and in receipt of a means-tested benefit, or have a parent or guardian in receipt if you are under 18. If you think you qualify, you can find your local agent at www.blind.org.uk. And remember, when setting up the player... Ask for the Cune Review channels. Now, back to the main programme. The Herald Scotland, politics, recorded on the 14th of December 2018. EU leaders tell Theresa May Brexit withdrawal agreement is not open for renegotiation. From Herald Scotland Online. EU leaders had told Prime Minister Theresa May that the Brexit withdrawal agreement is not open for renegotiation. They warned that the Prime Minister cannot expect a legally binding commitment that the UK will not be tied to the bloc indefinitely through the Northern Ireland backstop. The Prime Minister came to Brussels to appeal to the leaders of the 27 to give her the assurances that would enable her to get her Brexit deal through Parliament. Theresa May admitted the deal was at risk if MPs' issues could not be addressed. While the EU promised to do their utmost to ensure the backstop intended to ensure there is no return to a hard border between the North and the Republic, was never needed. They insisted they could not reopen the terms of the withdrawal agreement. European Commission President John Con Juncker said, We don't want the UK to think 
There can be any form of renegotiation, that is crystal clear. We can add clarifications but no real changes. There will be no legally binding obligations imposed on the withdrawal treaty. He also criticised the UK's lack of clarity over the future relationship it is seeking with the EU once it is left. Our UK friends need to say what they want instead of asking us to say what we want, he said. So it's like within a few weeks our UK friends to set out their expectations for us because this debate is sometimes nebulous and imprecise and I would like clarifications. The rebuff came after Mrs May, who survived a bruising vote of confidence by Tory MPs, told EU leaders that she could get a Commons majority for the controversial deal, despite heavy criticism from all sides of the House. However, in a meeting with the leaders of the remaining 27, she said she had to be able to convince MPs the UK would not find itself tied to the EU indefinitely through the backstop. There is a majority in my Parliament who want to leave with a deal, so with the right assurances this deal can be passed, she said in prepared remarks released by number 10. Indeed, it is the only deal capable of getting through in my Parliament. She made clear a failure by EU leaders to offer concessions risks the collapse of the whole agreement with the UK, leaving in March in a disorderly no-deal Brexit. We had to change the perception that the backstop could be a trap from which the UK could not escape. Until we do the deal, our deal is at risk, she said. It is in none of our interests to run the risk of accidental no-deal with all disruption that would bring, or to allow this to drag on any further. After listening to our appeal, European Council President Donald Tusk said EU leaders had reaffirmed that the backstop was intended as an insurance policy to prevent the return of the hard border. He said that they expressed a firm determination to work speedily to ensure there was an agreement on the future relationship in place by the end of the transition period in December 2020, so the backstop was not needed. He said that if the backstop was ever activated, it would apply temporarily, unless and until it is superseded by an agreement. That ensures a hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic is avoided. However, such assurances are likely to cut little ice with critics of the agreement, who have been demanding a break clause to ensure the UK cannot be held in the backstop indefinitely. Irish Premier Leo Varadkar who held a lengthy one-to-one meeting with Mrs May ahead of the main summit, said that while the EU was keen to be helpful, some of the suggestions she had put forward were difficult. In particular, he warned there could be no unilateral exit clause on the backstop, as some MPs are demanding. If the backstop has an expiry date, if there's a unilateral exit clause, then it's not a backstop. That would be to render it inoperable, he said. That would mean reopening the substance of the withdrawal agreement and the European Union is unequivocal that is not an option. From the Herald Scotland Online. Neil Mackay. Dear Dad, here's to getting to know you after all those lost years. By Neil Mackay, writer at large. Published in the Herald Scotland of Tuesday the 18th of December 2018. Six years ago at Christmas, my dad and I had an argument so brutal and cruel and mutually destructive that it's taken until this Christmas for us to be in each other's company again. The wounds started to heal a little back in spring when we began tentatively reaching out with emails, always about other people, never us. The first email came from Dad. An old teacher of mine from back in Northern Ireland, where I was brought up, had died. Dad wrote, telling me what happened. The email surprised me, not because of the news about my teacher, but because it was my dad who'd written it. I thought our relationship was in the grave too. 
I replied briefly and with no ill will, but I was curious why I'd even responded. Our relationship had been so bad and unpleasant over the years that I wondered why I risked rekindling it. A month later, I was working on a family tree for my mum, and for some reason I cannot fathom, curiosity maybe, a subconscious need for resolution perhaps, I sent my dad a few questions about our genealogy. My mum and dad had a stormy and unhappy marriage. Dad was often absent, and when he was home, he seemed in a constant state of rage. He and I rarely spent more than a few minutes together when I was a boy, and after my parents split up when I was in my early 20s, our relationship withered to a few awkward drinks once a year and the odd telephone conversation. I resented him for all the things I felt I'd missed out on that other young men had experienced. It made me sad when I heard friends talking about how much they loved their dad and how he'd taught them to swim or ride a bike or shave. We'd done none of those things together. We differ in almost every way and we've no hinterland, no shared memories of good times. Dad, though, had his own demons. He had a painful childhood and he knows that damaged him when it came to being a father himself. Still, it's strange how it was an email about a family tree which laid down the roots for the new tentative relationship Dad and I are experiencing now. Dad replied to my email with a whole swathe of information that he'd separately been gathering as research into the family tree. He'd uncovered a completely unknown branch of the Mackay family in America that I knew nothing about. He'd learned of them in the years of Cold War when he and I didn't utter a word to each other. I ended up in touch with those relatives in America and this summer a long-lost cousin called Alice, fittingly a retired social worker, came to Scotland and we spent some time together. When I spoke to her about my father, I realised that I was no longer boiling with anger towards him. In fact, I suddenly became aware that they... Anger I'd held was as destructive for me as it was for him. As I talked to this charming stranger who shared some of the blood in my veins, it dawned on me for the first time that what I felt was real sadness about my father. Loss, even. Sadness for a connection that never was. Loss of memories that neither of us had ever had and regret that so much of what had gone on between my father and me was steeped in anger and even hate on both sides. What a god-awful, pointless waste of two lives, I thought, as I found myself talking to my cousin about my dad. At this point, anger may have been put to one side and replaced with a melancholy for things that never were, but I still didn't want to see my father again. We have an expression in our family, it's all blood under the bridge, which might give you an idea of what kind of family we are. But I felt far too much blood had flowed under the bridge for us to ever be in the same room again. Then, however, I had a little intimation of my own mortality. I had a brush with ill health this year that pulled me up sharp. I realised that one day I won't be here. And with that comes the knowledge that others won't be here one day either. 
it made me look on all my relationships with new eyes to turn toward those I truly love and care for and value them all the more and all those people were my family. There was a ghost at the feast though and his name was Don, my dad. Serendipity seems to have reigned over so much of this new coming together of my dad and me. An email at just the right time, a family tree prodding the subconscious onward, a long-lost relative, a moment of sickness. So when Dad wrote to me not long after I'd recovered and asked if we could meet and try to put the past behind us, I was ready to agree. Neither of us would be here forever. And so, not long ago, my dad came to Scotland for three days and we spent more time in each other's company than we've ever done in our lives. My father and I had never even been to the cinema together, I realised. So we went to the movies and we had a laugh. We had a few decent meals and some good conversations. I think that for the first time in our lives we enjoyed each other's company. And that's a fine and good thing after four de decades of simmering tension, dislike and anger. We've a long way to go. We may not ever be bosom buddies, and that's fine as well. I wish English had a word for happy-sad, as that's how I feel about this little step my father and I have taken towards each other. And the time of year only adds to the mix of emotions because this will be the first Christmas when Dad and I might truly feel like family again, that we belong to each other after all. Remember, this Weekly Digest programme is just a selection of what we produce. You can access more daily content online for free at qandreview.com forward slash free podcasts for free daily podcasts of the Herald Scotland and Evening Times and weekly digests of the National and Inside Soap magazine. Alternatively, you can access all of these services via a BWBF Sonata Plus internet radio player. Now, back to the main programme. Article from Herald Scotland, 18th December 2018, Politics. Councils say Derek Mackay's budget is the final nail in local services, by Tom Gordon. Council leaders have reacted furiously to details of their budget allocation for the coming year, warning it risks damaging the country's social fabric. The umbrella group COSLA said the local government settlement for 2019-20 could throw people out of work and put the final nail into communities and essential services. COSLA President Alison Everson said that after years of cuts exacerbated by increased demand, we have now reached a point where there is simply nowhere else to go. In a call to opposition parties, she said that if Finance Secretary Derek Mackay did not rethink his position before a crunch Holyrood vote in February, there should be a parliamentary intervention to force him. The scathing attack followed Mr Mackay issuing the detailed local government settlement for 1919-20, setting out the money for every local authority. It assumed every council would raise council tax by the maximum 3%, meaning the average bill for a banned D home will rise from £1,208 to £1,245 from April. In his draft budget last week, the Finance Secretary claimed Scotland's 32 councils would enjoy a real terms boost of £210 million, taking their overall settlement to £11.1 billion. 
but analysis by the Scottish Parliament said the true figure was about £500 million less because so much of the headline total was ring-fenced for central government's priorities and so off-limits to councils. Holyrood officials estimated there had been a real-terms cut of around £300 million. Cosler uses a cash figure of £240 million cut from its core budget. Mr Mackay last night insisted it was fair funding, despite more Westminster cuts to his budget. He said, we have still provided a 2% real-terms uplift in the total local government settlement for 2019-20. If local authorities choose to use their powers to increase council tax by up to 3%, they can generate up to an additional £80 million to support the delivery of essential local services. However, Kostler said it continued a pattern of aggressive cuts in council budgets. Resources spokesperson Councillor Gail McGregor said, This is not good news for Scottish local government, and without a rethink from Scottish government or a parliamentary intervention, it puts at risk the delivery of essential services in the coming year. I stand ready to work with Scottish Government and all parliamentary parties to discuss how we can mitigate or reverse cuts that will have a direct impact on crucial services. Without meaningful movement on the basic settlement and proper discussions around enabling local government to raise more locally, I fear we are running towards a cliff edge. The issuing of the circular confirms this is a severe cut to the core budget that provides the vast majority of our essential services. If this settlement is not changed, it will mean substantial job losses in places where local government is the main employer. Scottish Government needs to look at the bigger picture and really start to think again about the economic impact of such a challenging settlement for Scottish local government. The Scottish Greens, who helped the minority SNP administration pass its last two budgets, but who are now playing hardball over local tax reform and budgets, were also unimpressed. Green MSP Patrick Harvey said, It's increasingly clear that the Scottish Government's proposed budget cuts will force local councils to slash frontline services. Ministers cannot continue to spin their spending plans as fair when the impact on jobs, care services and schools will be profound. The Scottish Greens have set out a better way forward. If SNP ministers commit to scrap the unfair, outdated council tax, and indicate support for giving councils the power to raise more of their own funds, we can at least begin to talk about the coming year's budget. But of course that budget must protect our public services, and the time for those talks is fast running out. Since 2010, the Scottish Government has seen its budget fall by 6% in real terms, but it has passed on real terms cuts of around 10% to local government. Councils, who employ around 1 in 10 of the Scottish workforce, have seen the biggest relative decline in jobs in the Scottish public sector as a result. At the same time, the country's ageing population has increased demand for care services, adding to the strain on budgets. The spending watchdog Audit Scotland warned last month that three-quarters of councils were forced to raid their reserves to shore up spending last year, and the unrelenting pressure on budgets means difficult decisions lay ahead. Labour MSP James Kelly said, rather than insult people with spin, Derek Mackay should be delivering a budget that delivers the radical investment local services need. Scottish Lib Dem leader Willie Rennie said, once again local government is getting the short end of the stick. 
Nicola Sturgeon's SNP have passed down cut after cut to local funds and expected councils to deal with it. Something has got to give. Q and Review Print Speaking to the Blind are a charity based in Bishop Briggs. We're currently looking to recruit volunteer access to audio ambassadors in Eastern Bartonshire to place leaflets and business cards at businesses, shops and amenities in the area and to show the public how to listen to daily and weekly online articles from the Herald Scotland, Evening Times, The National and Inside Soap magazine for free. If you would like to volunteer and become an access to audio ambassador, please contact Michael Rankin on 0141 772 3976 or email aaatl at qandreview.com. That's at qandreview.com. In addition, we are also recruiting for volunteer readers and technicians. If you're interested in reading or technically supporting a recording team, please contact us on 0141-772-3976 or email information at qandreview.com. Details of all of our volunteering opportunities are available on our website at qandreview.com. Thank you. Now, back to the main programme. The Herald, Monday, December 17th. The Marianne Taylor column. Don't waste your energy feeling sorry for Theresa May. The season of goodwill is upon us, and this year I have vowed to strive for serenity. I'm doing pretty well on the domestic front. I didn't, for example, shout and swear as I watched a stranger casually fill my recycling bin with his landfill waste. Instead, I simply cleaned up the bins without complaint, much to my husband's amazement. My new-found zen does not extend to politics, however, especially after the last week's disgraceful Brexit developments, following which I am failing miserably to keep calm and carry on. And despite what I've just said about goodwill, I have not one iota of sympathy for Theresa May and her current predicament. It's interesting, isn't it, how this narrative around feeling sorry for the Prime Minister has sprung up. The poor Theresa mantra reached a full head of steam last week, of course, as the extreme Brexiters in her party finally moved in for the kill with their vote of no confidence, after stalking her for months. In the media coverage during the build-up to Wednesday's vote, and in the tone of the reaction to her victory, I was struck by the number of folk who went on and on and on about how sorry they felt for Mrs May. It's become clear large sections of the public have become increasingly, indeed worryingly, impressed by the Prime Minister's handling of the Brexit debacle, seeming to view the blank look on her face as a comforting, praiseworthy signal to us, the plebs, that she knows what she's doing. I'm not fooled for a minute, and neither should you be. Mrs May's features are blank, not because she's brave, but because she lacks either the courage or the will to change course and save the country from the catastrophe we all face. 
To be clear, this Remain Voting PM is either stupid enough to try and go ahead with a policy that even her own government says will be massively damaging to the people of this country, or too cowardly to stop it. Which of these chilling realities is worse? Like the robot she jokingly impersonated a few months ago at the Conservative Party conference, the Maybot keeps going through the motions of the disastrous, unsupportable deal she has cobbled together. But that joke isn't funny anymore, especially as Mrs May must bear much of the responsibility for the impossible situation she has found herself in over the last weeks and months. Make no mistake, this is not only a perfect storm, but also a crisis of her own making. It was the PM, after all, who came up with the ill-conceived and wrong-headed red lines of the deal without consulting Parliament or even trying to build consensus and bring MPs with her. She has ignored the Scottish Parliament's objections and resisted every attempt at Westminster to give MPs a say in the process. Mrs May is not a person any of us the poor so-and-sos who will suffer economically, socially and culturally if she go through with this folly, should feel sympathy for. At this crucial point, I believe we should extend the hand of Christmas friendship to another divisive figure, however, Tony Blair. The former PM has been embracing the sort of leadership and pragmatism Mrs May continues to reject, by quietly chinning EU leaders behind the scenes, trying to hammer out a solution to the terrible situation we all find ourselves in. And since he's intelligent and sane, as well as extremely well-connected, Mr Blair has come up with a sensible and cogent way forward. The catch is, of course, it will require the sort of leap of imagination the current PM seems incapable of. Instead of trying to keep flogging her dead horse, Mrs May should, according to her predecessor, become a facilitator. If no consensus can be found in Parliament, he justifiably banks a public vote to determine whether Brexit should go ahead. Crucially, he also says the EU should and would make concessions on some of the issues that led to Brexit in the first place, such as free movement, thus allowing some EU doubters to come back into the fold and vote to cancel Brexit. Being seen to listen to concerns over immigration, to offer some flexibility to nation-states, would surely be welcomed more widely across the EU too showing uncharacteristic emotion, perhaps sensing he's onto something, Mrs May has angrily accused Mr Blair of undermining her talks. Predictably, the Corbyn faithful has also blown a gasket at his intervention. Labour's former leader remains the Antichrist in their eyes because of his decision to involve Britain in the Iraq war. To put it bluntly, 
the whole lot of them need to move on. Labour from Iraq and the Tories from their calamitous belief that Brexit can and should happen. Lest we forget Mr Blair, though undoubtedly flawed, was the last politician able to gain the broad support of most people in Britain, regardless of their background or ideology. He's the sort of pragmatic centrist the country is crying out for right now, and over the festive season I'll be praying Mrs May has a Christmas epiphany and follows his lead. This is an article from the Herald. 17th of December 2018. Paul Greer, Enitsis Tyside boss, 91k payoff, good value for money, and make a charity cash row. Paul Greer said the £91,280 settlement paid to Leslie McClear has been let down by errors in the process surrounding how it was signed off, but stressed that the sum itself was reasonable and represented good value for money because it was less than the estimated costs of a potential legal battle over unfair dismissal. It comes days after former SNP House Secretary Alex Neil accused NHS bosses of total incompetence after it emerged that Mr Lear has received an extra £32,105 after notice period was doubled from three months to six months without the approval of the NHS Tearside Remunerative Committee. The Health Board Secretary also mistakenly paid McClear £19,135 in pensions contributions linked to the notice period, which an audit Scotland said should not be paid, and which NHS Tearside has now attempted to claw back. Speaking to the Herald, Mr Greer, who is due to step down as Chief Executive of the NHS Scotland in February, after five years in the post, said Audit Scotland said the steps taken to reach a settlement were reasonable, but there were errors in the process. The error in the process, which was a failure to go through the Remuneration Committee, has been put right. The Audit Scotland also said was that the total costs of the negotiated settlement to the NHS Teesside were less than a central legal office estimate of the cost of fighting an unsuccessful legal case, so what they did was accord an audit Scotland reasonable and value for money. In that sense, the failure to follow due process was not right, and I'm glad they did pull it right. But it's disappointing that a settlement that was reasonable and represented good value for money, which would be very important features to me as the accountable officer, fell short in terms of process. McClear was outsid as chief executive in April after the Herald revealed that NHS Tearside had spent millions of pounds in charitable donations on general NHS spending instead. A total of £3.6 million was taken down from the endowment fund in 2014, months after McClear was appointed, with the bulk of it spent on IT services. Audit Scotland noted that the switch from three months to six months was made following discussions between senior leaders at NHS Tayside with Shirley Rogers, the Scottish Government's Director of Health Workforce, and representatives from the Central Legal Office. Consequently, McLear was paid an extra £32,105. The public spending watchdog said NHS Tayside leaders believe this was required to bring party with other chief executives across the NHS but added that the Health Board could not provide evidence to sustain this. Subsequent investigations by the auditors established that the current chief executives of seven NHS boards had contractual notice periods of three months. Meaning that the assumption that Leslie McClear's notice period needed to be changed to bring party with all other boards therefore not correct. 
The Audit Scotland reported added any extension to the Chief Executive Notice period to six months should have been expectedly approved by the Board's member committee. The Board was aware, unaware of that rumours committee. This was approved retrospectively on 15th November 2018, and as a result, McClear has no obligation to repair the 32,000. Given evidence to Hollywood Audits Committee last Thursday, NHS Tayside Chairman John Brown said he believed the approach taken by the board was the right thing to avoid our drawn-out legal process, which would have cost the public purse a significantly larger sum. That's the end of part one. After the break, we'll be coming back with more great articles from the Herald Scotland. Visually impaired people are being invited to see if they are eligible for a free, specially adapted radio from a charity. The British Wireless for the Blind Fund, BWBF, provides the equipment to those with sight loss around the UK who meet its criteria. Radio is a lifeline to those who are blind and partially sighted, providing companionship and helping them to keep in touch with what's going on in the world, as well as in the local community. BWBF offers equipment free of charge to those who have sight loss and are in receipt of a means-tested benefit. BWBF is launching its Reaching Out campaign to try and increase awareness about their equipment and help more people who are blind and partially sighted. Our regional development manager, Sophie Weldon, said, Our radios are designed so that a person with sight loss can use them easily and independently. All equipment is delivered to the home by a volunteer who sets it all up and provides support in using it. We offer a range of equipment, digital radios, CD players, memory stick players, internet radio and even a specially designed app. Our radios are vital to someone who cannot see. They provide news, information and entertainment, but also, more importantly, companionship and a friendly service. If you or someone you know is interested in a BWBF radio, please contact Sophie Weldon at sophie at blind.org.uk that is s-o-p-h-i-e at b-l-i-n-d dot org dot u-k or phone 01283-790-208 that's 01283-790-208, or on 07540-724-063. That is 07540-724-063. To find out more about the British Wireless for the Blind Fund, follow us on Twitter at British Wireless, like us on Facebook, or go to blind.org.uk. Now, back to the main programme. Welcome back. The headlines in part two. Why cold calling may be less of a nuisance. Parent councils join forces to oppose damaging school cutbacks. Higher taxes are no big deal, but improved services are. An article by Margaret Taylor, business correspondent and columnist. Joe Cole. Steve Clark got Chelsea to the Champions League final. I'm not surprised by his Kilmarnock success. European Human Rights Chief criticises SNP government over children bill. Fraser's deal hits profits as Mike Ashley Sports Direct. Rangers are almost there, so fans must get behind the team. Big lorry crash lawyer wants law change over driver health checks. An article by Katrina Stewart. 
The Herald, Monday, December 17. The Agenda Column, which is a column for outside contributors. And today it is from Tony McGlennon, the legal director at Adelshaw Goddard. Why cold calling may be less of a nuisance. The frustrating feeling of your day being interrupted by a nuisance sales call or your inbox filling with spam emails is something with which most of us are all too familiar. Whether it's PPI or personal injury claims, it can seem they're never-ending. However, new regulations aim to crack down on these practices by holding directors of offending companies personally liable. Today, amendments to the Privacy and Electronic Communications Regulations 2003 take effect, handing the Information Commissioner's Office, the ICO, powers to fine company bosses for breaches of the regulations, with penalties reaching as high as £500. It is welcome news for consumers, with research by Ofcom highlighting that people across Britain were plagued with about 3.9 billion unwanted texts and calls in the last year, and a which survey of 2,000 customers revealing two in five felt distressed and intimidated by cold callers. Scotland is a country most affected by nuisance calls in the UK, according to Citizens Advice Scotland. Research charity Nesta also revealed that more than half of Britons feel GDPR hasn't given them any more control over how many junk emails they receive. In fact, 22% of those surveyed said that spam emails increased in the six months since GDPR rules came into force. A host of organisations have therefore called for a tougher stance from the government to stamp down on nuisance calls. The 2003 Pecker regulations prohibit companies from calling people who have opted out of being contacted or who have registered with the Telephone Preference Service. They also prohibit businesses from sending spam emails and text messages. The problem, however, has been the effectiveness of enforcement. Offending companies dissolving before fines could be levied has often left the ICO with the unenviable task of trying to recover the fine from the liquidator or insolvency practitioners. Just such an event occurred in one of the ICO's most high-profile cases. Cower Boom Communications was fined a record sum of £400,000 in 2017 for making 99.5 million nuisance calls over 18 months, but was in liquidation by the time the fine was announced. The practice of phonixing has also caused concern. Here, the entity effectively re-emerges under a different guise operated by more or less the same personnel and engaging in the same cold-calling practices. 
The hope is the power to look behind the corporate entity and take to task the individuals who operate the offending body will provide the ICO with more ammunition. To take such action, however, the regulator will require to demonstrate not only that a breach of the direct marketing regulations has taken place, but also that it occurred with the consent or connivance of the company director or as a consequence of his or her neglect. To what degree the ICO will utilise these new powers remains to be seen. Certainly where the offending company has dissolved, enforcement upon an individual is more likely. As far as other circumstances are concerned, the regulator has previously maintained a selective approach to the action they take, often considering carefully the nature and seriousness of any alleged breach. It could be, therefore, that action against a company director is only taken where there is a large-scale breach involving recklessness or bad faith on their part. The government, however, has said the new regulations will send a strong message to directors and will be treated more seriously at boardroom level. It is therefore important that company directors tread carefully following the introduction of the new pecker or risk receiving their own unwanted call from the ICO. This is an article from the Herald, 17th of December 2018. Parent councils join forces to oppose damaging school cutbacks. Parent councils from eight secondary schools have signed a joint statement condemning the scale of reductions to budgets. The families argue for council's proposals will materially damage educational outcomes for all pupils. The move comes after five council unveiled plans to cut four million from education services over the next two years, including almost two million from secondary schools. The joint statement said we express our opposition to the scale of the budget cuts imposed by Fife Council because of their impact on educational provision and opportunities for our young people. Although we recognise that Fife Council has to make difficult spending decisions, these cuts are so large that they will have a fundamental impact on all our secondary schools, now and in the long term. The reduction in funding for our schools are wholly inconsistent with Fife Council's own vision of improving life changes for all. The move comes after school leadership teams from each of the secondary schools identified areas where money could be saved. This includes a reduction in subjects on offer, with those under threat including computing and business administration. Expensive practical courses are also at risk. Some schools are considering cuts to supply covers when teachers are absent and a reduction in the number of specialist staffs trained to deal with pupils who have additional support needs. Other possibilities include an increase to class sizes, a shortening of school week, increased teacher workload following reduction in administrative staff. Our statement concludes, overall, we believe the scale of the cuts over the next two years mean that educational quality for young people of Fife will be reduced below the acceptable minimum. These budget cuts will materially damage the educational outcomes of all our young people, creating larger, more expensive problems in the future with an ill-equipped workforce with less mental resistance. We would like to know how these false economies are justified our elected representatives in Fife Council. 
Fair Sinclair, Governor of the Council's Education Committee, said the submission would be assessed as part of the discussions on a budget. She said we would like to thank the parent councils of Fife for taking the time to provide us with such a well-thought-out feedback and we will be responding to them directly. The points they have raised here, along with the information we have had from staff and school management, will help us as we prepare for next year's budget. The co-leaders of Fife Council, David Alexander and David Ross, have previously warned a cost of education, some £350 million, accounts of half of the overall budget. A recent joint statement said over the years we have protected spend on education, but like every other service provided, education has to take a share of the savings we have required to make. To protect education completely would mean virtually wiping out many other vital council services. If you are blind or partially sighted, or know somebody who is, they may be eligible to receive a BWBF Sonata Plus internet radio, where our daily podcasts are available. To qualify for a free permanent loan from BWBF, you need to be resident in the UK, registered blind or partially sighted, over the age of 8, and in receipt of a means-tested benefit, or have a parent or guardian in receipt if you are under 18. If you think you qualify, you can find your local agent at www.blind.org.uk and remember, when setting up the player, ask for the Cune Review Channels. Now, back to the main programme. Higher taxes are no big deal, but improved services are. An article by Margaret Taylor, business correspondent and columnist, published in the Herald Scotland of Tuesday the 18th of December 2018. No sooner had Derek Mackay delivered his provisional budget than the screeching started. Mass exodus of workers to England... Inability to attract talent ever again. Middle classes to spurn promotion. The cause of such histrionics, the finance secretary had only gone and stuck to his guns by freezing the threshold at which the higher rate of income tax kicks in. Although in his earlier budget, UK Chancellor Philip Hammond, who seems to like nothing better than goading the SNP's Westminster contingent, effectively gave a tax break to the wealthy by raising the higher rate threshold south of the border to £50,000, Mr Mackay confirmed that in Scotland it is going to remain unchanged at 43430 Given that the typical full-time worker in Scotland can only dream of earning enough to pay the higher rate, you'd be forgiven for wondering what all the fuss was about. After all, when your annual earnings come in at only a little over 28000 the amount of tax being paid by someone on one and a half times that, a figure it would take well over a decade's worth of inflation-linked rises to achieve, isn't really all that relevant. The problem is that with Mr Mackay last year introducing two new tax bans at the same time as increasing the higher rate from 40% to 41%, he has brought enough complexity into the system for it to have become a thing. And we all know that things 
are things we most definitely have to get worked up about, especially if they create the impression that someone living down the road is getting it easier than us. So while the typical Scottish worker will pay just £14 more in income tax than the typical English one next year, because someone earning £50,000 will pay just over £1,500 more, there has been an outcry. While in many respects it is nonsensical to make such comparisons with England, the differentials are also impossible to ignore, and the Scottish Government can hardly claim otherwise given that it will happily make similar comparisons if it suits its own narrative. Indeed, when defending itself against recent accusations that its legal aid budget has been cut to the point of inadequacy, the Holyrood administration issued a statement noting that, quotes, the scope of legal aid remains extremely wide in England, unlike in England and Wales, where provision has been cut, end of quotation. Try telling that to the mother unable to access the legal assistance she needs to keep a roof over her and her children's heads. Yet to suggest that people will start hot-footing it to England or turning down career-enhancing promotions in order to escape or mitigate against a punitive Scottish tax regime seems far-fetched in the extreme, with the cost of doing so likely to very quickly outweigh the advantage. And while the higher rate differential could well make it harder for Scottish employers to attract new recruits from south of the border or to compete with English employers fishing from the same pool of overseas talent, it will not make it impossible. From family considerations and career opportunities to lifestyle choices and local connections, people make life-changing decisions based on a whole range of factors and not just the rate of income tax they will pay. So, while the SNP's politically motivated claim that free prescriptions and higher education are enough to make Scotland attractive may not wash with a university graduate who enjoys rude health, Lower house prices, an easier commute and the ability to go mountain biking every weekend might. Despite all this, by making full use of its tax-raising powers, the Scottish Government has created a significant issue for itself in that from now on everyone, even those who are unaffected by the tax differentials, will quite rightly expect it to deliver greatly improved services. With Scotland due to receive an extra £950 million from the Treasury next year to make up for Mr Hammond pumping more cash into the NHS in England, Mr Mackay has been able to allocate £500 million extra for the NHS in Scotland while also unveiling a long-awaited increase to public sector pay. Yet at a time when roads are crumbling, cities are filthy, major projects are stalling and teachers are threatening to walk out over paying conditions, these moves will barely be enough to paper over the cracks in a Brexit-bound country that has the effects of a decade's worth of austerity written all over its face. Showing a willingness to engage with the Green Party over council tax reform could ultimately lead to improvements in services at the local level, 
but that would require legislation to be passed first, meaning time is not going to be on Mr Mackay's side. When delivering his budget, the finance secretary threw down the gauntlet to himself by saying that freezing the higher rate tax threshold will ensure Scotland's health and care services get the full budget increase they deserve. Quantifying quite what that means will be easier said than done. But one thing is for sure, Mr Mackay is going to be judged on it. Remember, this Weekly Digest programme is just a selection of what we produce. You can access more daily content online for free at qandreview.com forward slash free podcasts. For free daily podcasts of the Herald Scotland and Evening Times and weekly digests of the National and Inside Soap magazine. Alternatively, you can access all of these services via a BWBF Sonata Plus internet radio player. Now, back to the main programme. Article from Herald Scotland, 18th December 2018, Sport. Joe Cole. Steve Clark got Chelsea to the Champions League final. I'm not surprised by his Kilmarnock success. Exclusive by Matthew Lindsay, chief football writer. Steve Clark's extraordinary success since taking over at struggling Kilmarnock at the end of last year has taken the whole Scottish football aback and earned him awards and plaudits aplenty. But leading the Rugby Park Club away from the Ladbrokes Premiership relegation zone and into the top six last season, and then taking them above Celtic and Rangers into first place in the top flight table this term, pales in comparison with his achievements earlier in his career, according to one of his distinguished former players. Joe Cole, the 56 times capped England midfielder, who worked under Clark at Chelsea for five years, believes the Scot must accept much of the responsibility for getting the London club to the Champions League final back in the 27-28 campaign. Clark stayed on at Stamford Bridge after Jose Mourinho was sacked after a disappointing draw with Rosenberg early on that season and helped his replacement, Avram Grant, to quickly settle into the high-pressure position and enjoy considerable success. Chelsea made it through to the final of Europe's Premier Club competition thanks to victories over Olympiakos, Fenerbahce and Liverpool in the knockout rounds and they only lost a dramatic match against their English rivals in Moscow, 6-5 on penalties. Cole, who helped his side hold United to a 1-1 draw in regulation time before being replaced by Nicolas Anelka, who failed to convert the decisive penalty in extra time, doubts his side would have fared so well that term without the input of their assistant. It's no surprise to me how well Clarkey has done at Kilmarnock, he said. I thought he did a good job as manager at West Brom. He was unlucky there. Sometimes success needs to be put into context. He learned from working under Jose. Jose did most of the coaching at Chelsea when he was there, and Steve would step in maybe 20% of the time. But as the years went on, he took on more responsibility, and when José moved on, he was very important indeed. The year we got to the Champions League final, Steve was a massive influence. I hope he won't mind me saying that, but he was. Avram Grant came in and did a good job. That season, we nearly won it all. We finished two points off top spot in the league, lost the League Cup final, and we lost the Champions League final on penalties. Steve had a huge amount to do with that because it was such a tumultuous time for the club. 
José leaving left a big hole because he was such a massive personality. But Steve stepped up and ensured we stayed focused. I knew then that he would be a great manager one day. Cole, who won every honour in the English game during the seven seasons that he spent at Chelsea, was on the receiving end of some dressings down by Clark, but looking back, appreciates they were for the benefit of the team. The 37-year-old, who intends to follow his contemporaries Stephen Gerrard, Frank Lampard and John Terry into coaching and possibly management in future, has not been shocked at all to see his old assistant manager galvanise a struggling group of players at Kilmarnock and turn them into one of the best sides in the country in the last 14 months. I can remember at Chelsea. We were drawing a game at Manchester City, he said. Avram was very calm, but Steve felt we needed a rollicking. He stepped up and really gave it to us. We went on to win the game. He read the situation brilliantly. He has great footballing instincts. He knows what players needed. That stuck with me as a player. He was very, very good. He's a straight man. He will tell you how it is. He doesn't waste his words. He's a tough guy, but he is a fair man, and that is all you want as a player from a football manager. He is just a good football guy. He is very knowledgeable. I am really pleased he is doing so well. Cole who brought his 20-year playing career to an end last month, will be coming to Scotland next month to play for England in the Star Sixes, a six-a-side tournament for legendary international footballers that is being held at the SSE Hydro and is looking forward to the experience greatly. He will team up with the likes of Wayne Bridge, Emil Heskey, David James, Michael Owen in the tournament and is determined to help his country triumph. I'm looking forward to it, he said. There is a good quality of player involved and we are all still competitive. It is definitely going to be exciting. None of us want to go out there and not do well. We will be ready. Star Sixes reunites the world's greatest players in national team colours to review old rivalries in six-a-side action. It will be held at the SSE Hydro Glasgow from January the 4th to the 6th. Tickets from £20 to £10 at www.thessehydro.com. The Herald Scotland Politics Recorded on the 17th of December 2018 European Human Rights Chief criticises SNP Government over Children Bill By Politics and Investigations Editor The Herald on Sunday, Paul Hutchian The Scottish Government is under pressure after being urged to raise the age of criminal responsibility to at least 14 by European Human Rights SAR Dunja Mijatovic said the ministerial proposal for raising the age level to 12 provides insufficient guarantees for a child-friendly system, adding that going further would conform to international standards. Liberal Democrat MSP Alex Cole-Hamilton said, This intervention is both timely and welcome. It underscores the reality that if we set the new age of criminal responsibility in Scotland at 12, we will reach the same level as the four most socially conservative countries in Europe and still find ourselves well behind the international curve. A child can be prosecuted at 12 years old, but the age of criminal responsibility is 8, one of the lowest in Europe. An adult could have a criminal record for something he did when he was in primary school. The age in other countries ranges from 10 in England, Wales and Northern Ireland, to 16 in Lithuania, Luxembourg and Portugal. A government bill introduced earlier this year raises the age from 8 to 12 in a bid to ensure children are not stigmatised at an early age. However, Holyrood's Equalities and Human Rights Committee, which is scrutinising the legislation, revealed some MSPs on the committee wanted the government to go further. 
We struggled, however, to reach a shared view on whether 12 was a sufficiently high age to achieve the outcome sought. Some members felt that if a move to 12 years old could deliver significant improvements to children's outcomes, then why should the same opportunities not be afforded to a young person of 14, 16 or even 18? The United Nations Committee is also consulting on a draft proposal which encouraged states to increase the minimum age of criminal responsibility to 14. Marie Todd, Minister for Children and Young People, is now facing a dilemma after an intervention by Mijatovic, who is the Council of Europe Commissioner for Human Rights. Established in 1999, the Commissioner is an independent institution and Mijatovic has a mandate to identify possible shortcomings in the law as well as providing advice regarding human rights. In her letter to Todd, Mijatovic said she warmly welcomed the government plan to raise the age of criminal responsibility but she warned, At the same time I am concerned that the current proposal to raise the minimum age from 8 to 12 still provides insufficient guarantees for a child-friendly and forward-looking system of dealing with children who come into conflict with the law. As many others who have commented on the bill have already noted, increasing the age of criminal responsibility to 12 would still leave Scotland behind the majority of Council of Europe member states, where the minimum age is often 14 or 15, and in some cases 16. She continued, similarly the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child is currently revising its general comment on children's rights in juvenile justice, with a view of issuing a clear recommendation to states to increase the age of criminal responsibility to at least 14, whilst commending states that have higher ages, such as 15 or 16. On this basis, I call on you to consider ensuring that the minimum age of criminal responsibility is fixed at 14 at least, but preferably higher, in line with the standards set out above and the clear trend towards increasingly higher minimum ages. With the bill at the second stage of the parliamentary process, ministers could raise the age limit, but Todd was unenthusiastic about going further than 12 when she spoke in the debate last month. I accept that the European average age of criminal responsibility is 14, however our comparative evidence clearly shows that the age of criminal responsibility does not mean the same thing in different jurisdictions. Cole Hamilton, who is putting forward amendments for both 14 and 16, added, whilst there may be a parliamentary appetite to support my amendment, lifting it to 16. I think that interventions from the international community, such as this, have helped to reframe the debate in support of my amendment to lift it to 14. The Scottish Government have stated that they are in listening mode and have not closed the door on further progress here. I look forward to working constructively with them through the next stages of the Bill and answer the clear challenge of international institutions pressing us to be more ambitious for Scotland's young people. A Scottish Government spokesperson said, We will maintain our carefully considered, collaborative and responsible approach as we plan for future reforms, responding to the needs of children, families and victims. We will consider the views of the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child once a final version of the revised general comment has been received. We also welcome the Council of Europe Commissioner on Human Rights' interest and will be inviting her to come to Scotland to see our approach to supporting children and young people firsthand and find out why this has had such success in reducing youth offending. By Politics and Investigations Editor, The Herald on Sunday, Paul Hutchian. This is an article from The Herald. 14th of December 2018. Fraser's deal hit profits as Mike Ashley Sports Direct. The firm, which is run by controversial former Rangers FC shareholder Mike Ashley, brought House of Fraser out of administration in August with a pledge from Mr Ashley to turn it into the Harrods of the High Street. 
Yet, Ralph House of Fraser Business generated £70.1 million of Sports Direct, £1.8 billion of revenues during a period ended on October 28th. It also made a pre-tax loss of £31.6 million. That fed through to the business as a whole. With Sports Direct earnings before interest, tax discrimination and moderation falling by 5%, from £156.1 million to £148.8 million, with the House of Fraser figures stripped out from the number wars by 15.5% to £180.3 million. Overall pre-tax profits, meanwhile, fell by 27% to £64.4 million. Mr Ashley admitted that Sports Direct faces significant challenges in the turning House of Fraser around, not least because he believes the company's former management had traded the business whilst it was insolvent for a long time. However, I genuinely believe that we have acquired a fantastic opportunity, and with the efforts of Sports Direct and House of Fraser teams, and the support of the brands, local councils and landlords, we can turn House of Fraser into Harrods of the High Street, he added. Sports Direct Chairman David Daly added that the business as a whole was extremely proud of the House of Fraser acquisition because it has allowed the company to save thousands of jobs at a time when the high street is under immense pressure. We remain fully committed to striving to build a bright future for House of Fraser on the high street and we would like to thank the countless brands and suppliers who have offered their support, he said. Prior to Sports Direct stepping in, House of Fraser had asked for landlords at a number of its 59 stores to reduce their rents in a bid to help keep a business afloat. Mr Ashley has been involved in further negotiations with a view to securing significant reductions to the company's total rent bill since taking over. So far, no other branches has closed down, although the whole store is expected to close at the end of the month, with those in Chester, Crenshaw, Extra and Salisbury expected to follow next year. In addition to House of Fraser, Sports Direct paid £8 million to buy Evan Cycles out of administration following the end of period under review. Mr Ashley said the acquisition was aligned with our previously stated desire to offer the best possible multi-brand and multi-category presentation to consumers. Whilst we are pleased to have reduced Evan Cycles brand to administration, we continue to believe that in order to save a business, some stores will have to close, he added. Shares in Sports Direct closed 15% down out of 235 yesterday. Q and Review Print Speaking to the Blind are a charity based in Bishop Briggs. We're currently looking to recruit volunteer access to audio ambassadors in Eastern Bartonshire to place leaflets and business cards at businesses, shops and amenities in the area and to show the public how to listen to daily and weekly online articles from the Herald Scotland, Evening Times, The National and Inside Soap magazine for free. If you would like to volunteer and become an access to audio ambassador, please contact Michael Rankin on 0141 772 3976 or email aaatl at qandreview.com. That's aaatl at qandreview.com. In addition, we are also recruiting for volunteer readers and technicians. If you're interested in reading or technically supporting a recording team, please contact us on 0141 772 3976 or email information at qandreview.com. Details of all of our volunteering opportunities are available on our website at qandreview.com. Thank you. Now, 
Back to the main programme. The Herald, Monday, December 17, Sport. The Tam McManus column, final say. Rangers are almost there, so fans must get behind the team. Rangers and their long-suffering punters find themselves in a scenario they could only have dreamed about on the day Stephen Gerrard strode into Ibrox back in July. Top of the league in the middle of December, and with a Europa League group campaign behind them, the club has certainly come a long way from the embarrassment of Pedro Cresino standing in a bush in Luxembourg after his side had been dumped out by a team who had never won a European game in their entire history. Yet there are murmurings of uncertainty among some fans on social media about Steven Gerrard and the players. I don't get it. Those same supporters need to remember the mess their club was in 12 to 18 months ago. Gerrard is a young manager and is going to make mistakes. Surely a degree of patience has to be applied, as well as perspective to the progress the club has made. Rangers have improved immeasurably in Europe within a short space of time and closed the gap considerably on Celtic. It can't happen overnight. It's going to take time and at least another transfer window before Rangers can bring in the kind of quality that can put it up to Celtic domestically. That starts in January, which is shaping up to be a huge transfer window for all concerned with the club. Rangers are not as far away as many might think, but they desperately need one or two key areas upgraded. His signings overall so far have been more miss than hit though, and he simply cannot afford another of the same ilk next month. Stephen Davis has been linked to the club, and he is precisely the kind of player Rangers should be looking to bring in. Crucially, he knows the expectations and demands of the club. That is an area I think that Gerard's current group is deficient in. They lack the been-there-done-it winning mentality required on both sides of the Glasgow divide. Celtic have winners in abundance in their squad. They can handle the huge demands and pressure to win week in, week out. Only Alan McGregor, Andy Halliday and Scott Arfield really get what Rangers are about and have the desire and demands to win every single game. That Rangers shirt requires big shoulders to fill it, and simply put, they don't have enough players capable of doing just that. Yesterday's narrow one nothing win against Hamilton, and the previous week's insipid 1-1 draw, showed that Rangers also need more firepower at the top end of the pitch. They desperately require another striker as backup to the talented but unpredictable Alfredo Morelos. Even more crucially, they need a number 10 to open up the packed defences that Rangers inevitably face most weeks. Kyle Lafferty has been a massive disappointment so far in his second spell. The form and goals he produced at Hearts 
seem a million miles away, and Umar Sadiq just wasn't good enough and will be out the door. But the key will be signing someone, a Tom Rogic or Ryan Christie type, with the craft and guile to open the door and thread passes between and behind centre-backs. Rangers just do not have that player at the moment, and it has cost them seven or eight points already in the league, a place in the League Cup final, and possibly a place in the last 32 of the Europa League. That has to be top of Gerrard's Christmas list, and getting that quality player who could be the difference between challenging Celtic for the title or facing a struggle to finish in the top three. The league is that tight. Rangers are top of the Premiership again, but can they handle the pressure and demands that their fans and manager will now heap on them? They failed miserably against Aberdeen the last time they hit the summit. Gerard has always stated that staying top is the hardest part. With a tough run coming up, including Hibs twice and Celtic at home, that winning mentality will be put under the utmost pressure. If Rangers can go into 2019 still top of the table, then the Rangers fans and players might start to believe they can halt what looked an inevitable stroll for Celtic towards 10 in a row. Beating Celtic and Brendan Rodgers for the first time could prove the catalyst for a glorious first season for their rookie manager. But have they got the quality, and more crucially, the mentality to do it? Celtic have proved that they can talk the talk and walk the walk. Can Rangers do the same? We shall soon see. And another thing, it has been a very difficult week personally for Lee Griffiths and it goes without saying I and most people wish him the very best in his battle with his ongoing issues. Footballers are not robots and immune from being engulfed by the same demons as any normal punter. Celtic have been first class in their handling of this whole situation and that can only help other people in Lee's situation have the courage to come forward. Good luck, Sparky. Big lorry crash lawyer wants law change over driver health checks. An article by Katrina Stewart, published in the Herald Scotland of Tuesday the 18th of December 2018. The solicitor for the family of one of the victims of the Glasgow bin lorry crash has said a systemic failure in driver health record checks could put further lives at risk. Ronald Conway, Scottish Coordinator for the Association of Personal Injury Lawyers, APIL, acted for the Tate family in the fatal accident inquiry, FAI, following the 2014 crash that left six dead and 17 injured. Driver Harry Clark, who passed out at the wheel, had been declared fit to drive after lying to his GP about a previous fainting episode while driving a bus. His deception could have been caught in 2011 when he renewed his heavy goods vehicle licence. Mr Conway said Clark's actions are part of a wider scandal he calls a cottage industry based on driver's convenience with no thought of public safety. 
Mr Conway said, Drivers with their livelihood at stake put on Boy Scouts' honour to tell the truth about their medical history with excellent prospects that any false declarations will go undetected and unpunished. That is until and unless we have yet another tragedy. They should be removed from temptation. It is high time for the Secretary of State for Transport to carry out an urgent consultation with a view to legislative change. To renew an HGV licence, a driver must have a DVLA D4 form signed by a doctor to declare a clean bill of health. Private firms will arrange for the form to be signed by a medical practitioner for a fee of around £50, but the signatory will not have sight of the applicant's medical records. Calling this a box-ticking exercise that has allowed a cottage industry to spring up, APIL is now launching a campaign to call for changes in the law. Jacqueline Morton, aged 51, and Stephanie Tate, aged 29, from Glasgow, Erin McQuaid, 18, and her grandparents Jack Sweeney, 68, and her, his 69-year-old wife Lorraine from Dumbarton, and Gillian Ewing, 52, all died in the bin lorry crash on December the 22nd, 2014. Another 17 were injured. In December 2011, Clark renewed his HGV licence by filling in the D4 application form, which asks about medical episodes in the previous five years. He said there were none, and at a face-to-face -face medical examination with an independent doctor, he also declared there had been none. The medic, a Dr Willocks, did not have access to Clark's medical records and so accepted his version of events. At the FAI in 2015, Dr Willocks testified that had she known about the previous faint, she would have asked for further inquiries. Mr Conway said, People can make up their own minds about Harry Clark, but it is difficult to view him as a criminal mastermind. The ease with which he gamed the DVLA application system to retain his HGV licence is deeply disquieting. At the FAI, the judge, Lord Beckett, expressed a view that a requirement should be explored for occupational health doctors performing D4 exams to have an applicant sign a consent form authorising the release of relevant medical records. In his judgment, Lord Beckett recommended the Secretary of State for Transport should consult on how to ensure information available to examining doctors was accurate and complete. In December 2010, two young women were knocked down and killed in Glasgow where fainting at the wheel was involved. Students, Marie Convey and Laura Stewart, were killed in Glasgow city centre when driver William Payne fainted and lost control of his 4x4. Mr Payne had suffered four previous blackouts from 2007, but when examined in July 2010 by an occupational health doctor, he denied any previous problems. The doctor did not have access to his medical records and certified him fit to drive. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of The Herald Scotland. This weekly talking newspaper digest was a Q&Review recording service production. The readers were volunteers at Q&Review and, and the producer was Jordan Duncan.
Q and Review Recording Service Limited is a registered Scottish charity. Number SC018016. Our registered office is at 18 Crowhill Road, Bishop Briggs, Glasgow, G641QY. Remember, you can always get in contact with us by email at information at qandreview.com or by leaving us a message on our answering service at 0141 772 3976.